players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Riddle Effigy, Yoko Hawks, Curse of Fool's Wisdom, and many others. Battling head-to-head in brutal combat, they have all one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by Bashmiral on YouTube, Thraven University, and TheEpicStorm.com. This episode is sponsored by Tales of Adventure. Get sweet legacy staples and much more at ToAMagic.com. Hello and welcome to episode 73 of the Eternal Glory Podcast, The Power of Deduction. We've already recorded 30 minutes of introductions and banter for this week, available in our Patreon-exclusive pre-show. Check out patreon.com slash eternalglory to gain access. Gentlemen, how are you doing tonight? What's up, YouTube? Oh, yeah, we're on YouTube now. Uh, Good work, Bryant. Bryant did a ton of work just putting all our old episodes on YouTube. There's no video. It's just like our our backdrop. But if you prefer YouTube as a listening platform... Uh, that's a thing you can do. Just add it to your playlist. We had a lot of positive feedback, so happy to make uh, some of our fans, you know, their life easier. Yep. Yeah. We recruited a a Patreon supporter who has been uh, gently requesting this for two years now. Mike, our buddy Mike, is now a Patreon supporter. We're happy to have him. Shout out to our other new patrons since the last episode. Justice, Preston, Caleb, Andrew, Coomgen. Oh, that is not an English name. Kumgen, uh, there is an umlaut, and Brandon. So shout out to all of our new Patreon supporters. If you want to join that group, patreon.com slash eternal glory. All right. That's uh that's enough self-plugging, but really uh we 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 do appreciate it. This uh this whole process has been formalized a lot and we're really happy with our finished product, and we hope you are too. Speaking of our finished product, uh, every once in a while we we say something wrong or we, you know, kind of say something on the fly and it's not hundred percent accurate. Um, so we're going to do a, a quick series of addenda here uh, to last week's episode, and Brian is just going to touch on a handful of the things from the, the judge perspective and clean up some things we said. Yeah, last episode, we spent a lot of time talking about judges and how to interact with them and what judges can and can't do. And after the episode, a friend of mine who wishes to remain anonymous publicly, but I trust this person completely with all matters of judgeship. Uh, they wanted to clean up some stuff we said. Some of them are uh, self-admittedly pedantic, but some of them are actually functional. So I'm going to hit the more important ones from the player perspective. Uh, Judge Academy has nothing to do with banning players. I think we may have said Judge Academy bans people, but Watsy does that. Judge Academy is not looking at your accumulated penalties. And really, accumulated penalties are only used for bans if they're sure you did something illegal and want to get rid of you. It's not like a oh, this person has 10 GRVs, they're out. Normal players don't need to worry about that. If a judge says yes when you ask if you can name a card off Pithing Needle, uh, they're a jerk and don't really understand policy. This judge said that they would say something more like, Needle doesn't restrict cards you can name. You can name literally any card. Sort of uh, let you know something's wrong with your question without coaching you. There is nothing in policy saying that players must be permitted to watch their deck checks. It's a uh, a service that can be provided, but it's also a service that could not be provided based on staffing or space or whatever. A lot of things that used to be angle shooting in the past, like we talked about Patrick Chapin's infamous, I'll give all my legal creatures fear. Uh, that is a DQ nowadays. This is a, a big one. Um, if you do anything to obfuscate the board, 
or give a puzzle for your opponent to solve. Uh, like, you can't say, uh, I'm going to give fear to all of my creatures that are to the left of a creature with higher power. Like, y you can't present a puzzle. You have to point to your things and say this, 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 or name them. Uh, so that has tightened up a lot. Patrick Chapin would be disqualified under present policy for that play. Slow play. Okay. Uh, the upgrades of infractions we talked about. Tournament errors upgrade on the second infraction, not the third. So slow play is a tournament error. Um, deck problems are a tournament error. But uh, game rule violations upgrade, gameplay errors upgrade on the third. So you can get like one slow play, uh, one deck problem, three, two game rule violations, and two hidden card errors and still be safe from an upgrade. Uh, but tournament errors upgrade faster than gameplay errors. And a judge can always decline uh, sticking around if you ask them to monitor the pace of play based on staffing needs elsewhere. Uh, I think we said they have to stay or implied that they it's a service they have to provide. That's optional. And those are the things we wanted to clean up from the, the expert judge. All right. Awesome. So we're going to go ahead and go to a Patreon submitted question. And uh, this one comes from Jeremy G. And the gist of what they asked was, or I guess it's a technically a statement, but here's what they said. I'd love to hear what gives the edge in various control matches. And we're going to kind of break this down into two sections. First, talking about like what the various color combinations offer you, and then kind of talking about some play patterns and kind of the differences in style between these various control decks. I want to jump in real quick, and we did a deep dive on this uh, long ago, probably a year ago or more. And we did a whole episode that was just like blue and then each pairing with blue, and then each wedge with blue in the middle, and exactly what adding colors does for your blue deck. And if you want to hear an hour or more on this, go go find that episode, but we will address it quickly here. So I'm going to just start with like a pure blue-white control deck. Historically, what that's offered you is very great mana base stability, and oftentimes the ability to play something like Back to Basics either in the main deck or sideboard. So if you want to be rock solid versus Wasteland and Blood Moon because your metagame is full of things like, say, Delver and Red Prison decks, like that may be a great option for you. But if you find you're struggling with some matchups or you need access to specific tools like Pyroblast, it may be time to weaken your mana base in exchange for greater access to the card pool speaking of mana bases brian as the control expert of the group i have a question for you back during the sphinx's revelation standard i played a lot of that deck a lot of it and one of the big secrets to that deck was always just add one more land because the control mirrors were just defined by hitting land drops and usually you didn't want to be the first one to flinch you wanted to just sit back wait for your opponent to flinch counter their thing and then deploy your aetherling or whatever does this sort of mindset apply to legacy at all where you really just want to posture with your lands you want to make your land drops does that exist in legacy absolutely we we're going to talk about getting an edge in play patterns uh next after the color breakdown but i'll jump answer this question now in a control mirror Generally, like one of the old adages is whoever acts first loses, like whoever decides to tap mana on their turn first, they're going to lose that counter war, and then the opponent will untap and jam and resolve whatever player, the first player just tried to resolve, because they're going to be tapped out, everyone's going to be low on resources, and then the second player to act gets to act with fresh mana and a tapped out opponent. 
and usually what forces the person to act first, if assuming they know how to play a control mirror, they're not just flinging crap at the wall, is they start missing land drops, they're about to go to discard, they're about to start losing advantage if the game goes any longer. They're put in a position where it's it's not getting better, time to shove my Jace. I feel that tension all the time. If you watch my channel, if you watch me play any control decks, I'm always like, uh, I got I got two more lands, we're good. Or uh, I'm about to miss a land drop. Uh, I have five cards in my hand, I can miss a land drop for two turns, and then then I'm worried. So uh, yes, hitting your land drops and acting last or creating opportunities where your opponent has to interact on their own turn uh, with, this is why I like Shark Typhoon, this is why Endurance is great, just these flash threats, yeah, Snapcaster Mage if you want to kick it old school, just things you can do when your opponent has to commit their own mana before you untap and operate off your own is is where you want to be a lot of the time. All right, um, going back to blue-white for just a second, I do want to say that there has been a paradigm-shifting card printed in regards to blue-white control, and that's the presence of Prismatic Ending, which is just this insanely flexible card that really incentivizes you having access to a third color. So I imagine that straight blue-white control will become a little less popular in Legacy moving forward, just given the flexibility of that card. But there's no reason why you can't be straight blue-white. Like, there are other great flexible tools that exist, like uh, like Teferi. Yeah, that the existence of Prismatic Ending and the card being so powerful, I've played, air quotes, blue-white decks on my channel, where I'm just playing one Volcanic Island anyway, or one Jeskai Triome, or whatever, just because... Having that third color, uh, when you have four colors and you can exile a Jace, things get really exciting. But uh, even if I'm a two-color deck, I'm going to have access to one extra color. Or I'll put a Blood Moon in my sideboard, and then I have red after after board if my Blood Moon sticks. Like uh, it, Prismatic Ending does warp deck building in that regard. I think the pure blue-white control days are probably behind us. All right, so... On that note, red is probably the most likely color that a a deck would splash right now. Uh, Pyroblast is just so good in, in Legacy. It answers card advantage cards uh, like, say, Teferi or Jace or uh, Expressive Iteration. It answers important threats in the format like Murktide and, and Delver. Yeah, if you're not playing red for Pyroblast, like the best non-red replacement for that is probably Mystical Dispute. And that only works on the way down, and it only works in the early game, where if your opponent just draws Teferi on turn 7 and just casts it with 4 extra mana, your dispute's dead. If the Teferi resolves, then you draw dispute, it's dead. Like, all the way dead. Pyroblast being a removal spell and a counter, obviously, like, <laughs> I don't really need to sing the praise of Pyroblast to legacy podcast listeners, but it's very easy to dip into red. A lot of these blue-white decks, you'll see them with one Volcanic Island main and one mountain in the sideboard. Because you want access to a basic mountain against decks where you want Pyroblast that also have Wasteland, namely Delver. So that's usually what that mana base looks like. Just uh, a bunch of basics, one or two Tundras, one Valk, and then a mountain in the sideboard. And that gives you just a powerful upgrade in Pyroblast. Yeah, and kind of on the mana base note, if you splash a different color and you go for green instead going into a Bant shell, your mana does become a little more constrained because now you care about blue blue green green for escaping uro 
while also caring about early white for things like Swords of Plowshares and Prismatic Ending. Yeah, this is a big thing that's a fundamental shift that I don't know that people who don't actually build decks or think about deck building have noticed. When Uro became the, the default control finisher, or it was uh, Oko uh, it, before that as well, um, control decks stopped being blue-white X and started being blue-green X. Like, the X might be white or red or beyond, but the core of Legacy Control right now, uh, at least in the the Bant... Legacy Control is actually robust. I'm not going to declare there's one correct core because Jeskai and Grixis are both back and forth right now. But for a long time, Control was blue-green, splashing white, and then everything else was optional, which to support Endurance and Uro is necessary. And then that changes your... Like, you still need white for Swords to Plowshares. Uh, Prismatic Ending becomes a freebie because you're already in the three colors. Uh, white is already the splash, so you're you're good there. But you don't get Pyroblast in three color. Uh, so that's where the Mystical Dispute stuff comes in, that sort of technology, Veil of Summer. You get tools like that. So Grixis is something you can go into in control. Grixis, in some ways, has an uphill battle Um the printing of Hidetsugu Consumes All has helped out with a lot of their problems, giving you a fantastic sweeper that also happens to nuke graveyards, which is important for things like Uro and Murktide Regent, while providing a reasonable clock as a finisher. Because uh, let me tell you, when you are trying to kill your opponent with a Baleful Strix and maybe a Snapcaster Mage, the games drag on. Your opponent has a lot of time to draw powerful cards and get out of that. Um, Hidetsuka Consumes All was kind of a game changer and brought Grixis back into the conversation for reasonable control archetypes, whereas previously it had kind of been in like the Esper category of like, you probably shouldn't be playing this color combo. Yeah, uh, Hidetsuka Consumes All reminds me of another card uh, and how it impacted the metagame, which is Veil of Summer and the Storm Uh aspect uh bryant just perked up in his chair uh like uh, a number of people myself included saw the printed uh printing of veil of summer and then three months later ad nauseum tendrils went from winning grand prix to unplayable and it's like oh yeah obviously there's a one mana interactive spell that fizzles tendrils fizzles discard they can't beat it but a number of other things changed like the printing of force negation and uh like meta shifting that was a lot more impactful than veil itself hitetsuka consumes all getting back to my point was printed at a time where blue green was the best control core but jeskai was starting to emerge because blue green became blue green white red or blue green white black or even five color in some cases and the mana base was greedy as hell uh anorog's been playing zero basics and two wasteland in his four color control decks forever and I was doing the same. Like, that's not a shot at Anurag. It was just how you build your deck. No one's going to punish you. But Jeskai emerged with Blood Moon and four Narset in the main deck and the Days Undoing combo and Exile-based removal. And Uro just got a lot worse. And Hidetsugu Consumes All was printed in that same window where people were figuring out Jeskai. So the combination of Grixis having Graveyard Hate in the main and Jeskai just being really good against Uro anyway, at least four color builds of Uro, uh, kind of swept Uro off to the side. And like, I'm the Bant guy. That's one of my channel brands is is Bant. And I could not recommend Bant for a tournament right now. 
because I think both of the other control decks are favored against it, which uh, Uro kept Grixis from being competitive for a long time because they could not interact reasonably with that card. Discard spells suck. You don't want to mill them. Uh, Fatal push lineup against Uro is a joke. So uh, consume entering the metagame combined with people figuring out Jeskai and how to deconstruct Uro decks and control mirrors. Uh, it's a tough time to be Uro, and Hidetsugu Consumes All is part of that equation. All right, and kind of the last thing I want to touch on here is the the four-color good stuff piles that sometimes run around Legacy. Now, there are times when it, it's just probably correct to be on those builds, when there's some powerful mana fixer in the format, uh, you know, a Deathrite Shaman or Renin Six-style card. Arkham's that Astrolabe. Really, uh, yeah, Astrolabe. Something like that that really lets you get away with that greed, and it's often good to be playing those decks in those cases. Now, if you're showing up to your local tournament and you're playing against Death and Taxes and Delver and uh, Fable Hearse Red Prison all day, uh, you're going to have a bad time not having basic lands in your deck list. So your card quality and oftentimes flexibility will go up when you play these four-color builds, but it, it every non-basic land in your deck has a price, and I cannot uh, echo this enough. There's so many times in playing Brews on my channel where I'm just looking at all these legendary lands I have in duplicates, or I'm like staring down back to basics, and it's just like, oh no, why is it like this? Yeah, I'll push back just a little bit uh, on the Delver and Death and Texas part of that statement. Like the four color decks, uh, they started playing Life from the Loam, they started playing Witherbloom Command, they all had Uro in them. Those decks were built to shrug off a Wasteland or two. Uh, in a lot of cases, I'm even like sitting with Loam in my hand and I'm like, please Wasteland me. You're going to regret it three turns from now. And uh, like when you resolve Loam against a fair Wasteland deck, you just feel like you can never lose. It's the Blood Moons. It's the Back to Basics. It's the Ruinations. That's what's shutting the door on the on the four color control decks. Uh, we're built to shrug off Wasteland. Delver's been S tier the whole time of Uro's run in the format. So uh, we're ready for that. But but yeah, those people remembering that the actual game-ending non-basic hate exists, which wasn't in the format for a very long time, it has shifted things. Yeah, uh, maybe about the last three weeks or so, Red Prison has seen a... Well, maybe we don't even call it Prison. Uh, the Moon Stompy deck that's running around currently uh, is really doing numbers in weekend challenges. Um, unlicensed Hearse being a main deckable threat that's playable off an ancient tomb while also serving as graveyard hate for things like Murktide Region and Uro that like historically have given it some trouble um, has apparently been pretty huge and uh, Fable of the Mirror Breaker has been seeing a huge uptick in play after kind of uh, sitting ignored for quite some time. Yeah, a lot of new tools for Red Prison suddenly out of nowhere. Uh, Unlicensed Hearse has been a kind of a beating uh I had a Goblins player jam on License Hearse against me. I was on four-color control. It's like, all right, well, I'm not doing anything till I answer this. And had to dig for Prismatic Ending. Lost an Uro along the way to the Hearse and uh, had to recoup from there. That card is is very real. It's been um, inconsistent for me. Very high ceiling on the card, but also kind of low floor because it's not it's not a standalone threat, and I absolutely lost a game where I had lethal on board if I drew any creature to crew it, and I just didn't. So, yep. like, it's not like a Goblin Rabble Master that will spiral the game out of control on its own. It's a prison piece that can turn into a finisher later under the right circumstances. 
As far as play patterns, like we've talked about what the colors give you, uh, we'll try to make this quick. We already talked about hitting your land drops and not getting impatient. Uh, the I can tell immediately when someone is new to control if I'm in a control mirror based on what they prioritize. Like an opponent who, as soon as they have five mana, cast Jace with Red Blast back up, and I also have four or five untapped mana, I'm like, you think that's enough? Are you kidding? And then I counter their Jace, and then I untap and jam my own thing, and the game is over. Like you need to understand the what exactly what the risk reward is in every control mirror. Like if I'm a Bant core and I jam Uro on turn three, the worst thing that can happen is Narset or Teferi. Uh, that's what can come out of the uh, the Jeskai opponent. And it's just like, oh, well, this permanent is extremely difficult to beat. So your risk on turn three is extremely high. Versus Grixis, they don't have, uh, they have Narset in their deck, but they can't play Teferi. Hidetsugu consumes all, doesn't probably won't do much on that spot. Like Grixis has a lot less to do on a turn three situation than Jeskai does. Uh, likewise, if I'm Jeskai, uh, knowing when I can slam my Narset or Teferi because my opponent, my Bant opponent can't have Pyroblast in their deck, or Grixis has adopted, uh, I mean, they have Pyroblast, they've also been adopting Fury as just a magic card. Like, even if I resolve my Narset, they could untap Jam Fury, pick off Narset, and have a 3-3 double strike in play. Like, you gotta really understand the risk-reward and know your role. Do you have something like Endurance to pressure an end step? Do you have Shark Typhoon to pressure an end step? If my opponent waits, if I wait too long, does my Mystical Dispute become not a protection piece anymore? Like maybe you have to jam on turn four to try to win a fight before turn six when your Mystical Dispute won't help you anymore. Like there's a lot of really knowing your role, knowing the risk reward of tapping out, knowing who's better at going long, like, if your opponent is an Endurance deck, maybe you have to push a little harder with the Fairy early on to make sure that doesn't happen to you. Just knowing your role is always the answer about how to win a control matchup, and that doesn't change in the mirror. All right. Do we have any final thoughts on this section, or should we move on to our primary topic of the day? I would like to reiterate for our listeners, Uro is not well positioned right now. I'm sorry to say, uh, if you have to play control, I recommend Jeskai or Grixis. Sounds good. So our primary topic of the day is actually deck identification. So, so frequently in my YouTube comments, people wonder like, how on earth did Phil know what deck his opponent was playing? They only played like a land in one spell. And that sort of thing just looks like absolute magic, uh, absolute sorcery to the outside viewer. But when you're really heavily entrenched in Legacy, there's a lot of information kind of hiding in play, plain sight. And the easy answer to how to get better is, like, play more Legacy, idiot. Like, go go jam a thousand games. You'll get really good at doing it. But for those of our viewers on more limited time, because you've got kids or jobs or whatever, we're going to try to, like, present this as a more learnable skill and show you some of the things that you can be looking for. Yeah, this is... I also get these comments. I played a arena rector deck recently which had cabal therapy as a four of in it and i think i missed on cabal therapy once in the league and it was after they brainstormed in response to the cabal therapy and in retrospect i should have known what they brainstormed into or at least mapped out their plan and i was really mad at myself for the whole league i was like 
X and 1 on Cabal Therapies, and the 1 was also deducible if I had stopped to make put enough thought into it. So, and people in the comments were like, what are you doing? Like, it's like you have telepathy and play all the time. And that reminds me of uh, Michael Jacob used to stream all the time, former U.S. world champion, <laughs> world champion of the U.S., U.S. champion and uh, Pro Tour Top 8 competitor, etc. He he used to have in his like FAQ under his stream, uh, like, aren't you worried about people ghosting you? And his reply was, no, that just levels the playing field. And that's kind of a cocky way to say it, but players who understand formats really can predict most of the cards in their opponent's hand after a certain point. And in order to predict what cards are in their hand, you have to know what's in their deck. And to know what's in their deck, you have to be figuring out that information from the from the jump. A lot of the times the jump is their first land drop, but it could be how quickly they mulligan, how many times they mulligan. Obviously, a companion will give you a lot of information, and that happens before mulligans. But if I see an opponent uh, draw seven, barely even think, and just chuck it away, that might not tell me much. If I, I see an opponent staring at their seven like very clearly, like counting to ten or counting to four, and then like hemming and hawing, then mulling to six. I'm like, okay, it's soups all spells or Belcher or some sort of storm deck. Uh, if they're just like chucking, if they chuck a seven without really thinking that long, and then also chuck a six without thinking that long, I'm putting them on combo there too. Like probably reanimator or some sort of like one that it's easy to identify whether you're there or not. Like stuff happens before the game even starts that can start giving you hints in the correct direction. And if you're playing in paper, Take a look at your opponent's deck box, because I've figured out what deck my opponent is playing plenty of times because they just, like, face their tokens the wrong direction and show me a pile of goblins. Now, you know, you can get next leveled and that's, like, somebody's misdirection or something like that, but, you know, there are hints out there. Phil, I know that you know my good friend Itai Ben Sasson. He mm -hmm. keeps a storm token as his deck divider, and uh, once in an SEG, he had an opponent threaten to take him outside because he the opponent was so angry about the mislead of the storm token deck divider. <laughs> Got caught with your hand in the cookie jar, and now you're mad about it. That's great. Uh, I he is such a troll. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, and like we're kind of in the weeds already, but that's okay. That's what this cast is about. We'll work our way back out, but. There's like different levels to that too. Like if you just, if your opponent's deck box is like 45 degrees to them and you can kind of see a storm token divider in there, maybe that's information you can work on. If your opponent straight up sits down, pulls their deck out, plops a pile of zombie tokens on the table, I'm like, they're 0% to be on dredge. Like you can oversell your bluff and like there, there's like, there's levels to that. Like don't get got. One time at a legacy tournament, I sat down across from someone with a lightning bolt playmat a red hat on with the red mana symbol and a red shirt that said, I play burn. And I was like, <laughs> are you lying to me? And he was like, no, I play burn. And he was in fact playing burn. <laughs> so sometimes you just get like a lifestyle choice. At SCG Philly earlier this year, I played against someone using an Epic Storm pen as their life total. And uh, when they started storming off, they pulled out all of Brian's little trinkets he sells on his website, like the storm counters and the mana counters and the the ooze tokens and everything. And I was like, yep, the sign was there. So sometimes it's face up, but sometimes you do have to wait for a land drop. What does that look like, gentlemen? So Brian, you, or I guess you're mentioning it now again, but you talked about the initial land and sometimes it's really obvious. Like you'll see an underground sea and you'll think doomsday and then maybe ant and then stuff like that. 
But something that I think a lot about, and maybe this is just me being way too into the weeds, but your opponent plays just a brand new set basic mountain, passes the turn. To me, I go, okay, well, goblins would usually have Aether Vile or Lackey, or they kept a really bad hand. Burn either has Lightning Bolt on the end step or it's not Burn. And if it's a new basic mountain, it's definitely not Control, because Control players try to pick the nicest basics they can, because that's who they are as people. They're so, like, narcissistic about that sort of thing, where, of course, they're not wow, playing. Wow, Japanese foil Bryant Cook just I mean, shot out narcissism as the card. How about they have a certain aesthetic, Brian? Sure. We'll, we'll, we'll say that. that. We'll say that. <laughs> but you know what I mean, though? Like, there's no way they're playing Kaladesh. I guess Kaladesh isn't new. What, what are magic sets? Some new magic set. Like, they're not playing that mountain. Like, you could just immediately discredit them as not a control player. So I think that, like, within that, I've already narrowed down the deck choice to, like, this could be, like, Moon Stompy with a turn two Trinisphere or a turn two Rabble Master or something like that. Yeah, uh, that is a, a way to go. The The type and aesthetic of the land played there's also uh the land itself like even among like before we got like even if it was just a beautiful crisp alpha mountain everything you said about like there's no goblin guide there's no suspend rift bolt there's no aether bio there's no goblin lackey what deck goes mountain go it could be burn with just a handful of instants they just bolt you in the end step on tap eidolon or we could be facing down chalice of the void or trinisphere next turn and that is useful information regardless of what their mountain looks like. I want to circle back to Underground Sea for a second because we mentioned that one. So uh, mentally, when I see a land drop, I start thinking, what is the most likely thing my opponent is going to be playing? And Bryant immediately said Doomsday, which would be like my my answer as well. And then from there, there are like different tiers of like possibility. Like Ant is a reasonable deck that shows up sometimes. Blue-black reanimator would be exceptionally rare, as would be something like Tin Fins, right? So I like to start by assuming that my opponent is playing a somewhat common deck until I get information that causes me to change my mind. So similarly, if I see a Yorian revealed at the beginning of the game, my, my, my first thought is I'm going to assume this is Death and Taxes until on turn one... I get something that confirms that it's not. Because there's other things Yorian can be. You can be a Yorian control pile. You can be Yorian cephalid breakfast. But I, I like to start with thinking this is probably a common deck. Which common deck is this going to be? Yeah, I'm definitely and... not guilty of falling for that ever in my life. What, thinking it's death and taxes? You just always know it's a force wheel deck? Um, no, I'm saying I mole to a turn one and then I get forced and cry myself to sleep. Yep, okay, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, people who watch my channel daily, I've been very careful lately about saying my opponent revealed Yorian, the most likely deck is Death and Taxes, but Cephalid Breakfast has been really hot lately, and I even played against a Yorian Oloran deck the other day, and I, I make sure to say Death and Taxes is likely, but let's see what happens here. And luckily, like, you can use that information even if it's incomplete, like, Swords to Plowshares is going to be good against Death and Paxes and good against Cephalid Breakfast. You don't like necessarily need to know exactly what they're on to make informed decisions. Uh, Force of Will is going to be good against some of those, like kind of good against all three of those decks. And uh, if it ends up being uh, Death and Taxes, you'll find something to Force where you can brainstorm it away. 
if it's a Lauren or Cephalid Breakfast, you're really happy you have that card. So uh, you can make complete decisions on incomplete information. Or looking at this from a slightly different perspective, you also figure out the speed of your opponent's deck, right? Like yes. if your opponent is playing an 80 card Yorian deck, most of the time they are not going to turn to you. Uh, it is it is still possible. The Yorian Cephalid Breakfast deck does have lines that kill on turn two. Those are just going to be less frequent because you're mo you're less likely to draw your A plus B combo piece in addition to like maybe an Ether Vial or a piece of counter magic to back it up or whatever. You should tell that to my Cephalid Breakfast opponents, Phil, because on camera recently, I my opponent revealed Yorian. They went basic planes Aether Vial. I was like, OK, and then I died on turn two. Just vial it in the Nomad, cast the Cephalid, and GG. So like, oh, all right. <laughs> nice death in Texas deck. But but yeah, uh, all all things, that is the outlier, not the, the norm. Um, talking about Underground Sea, uh, and, and even like the fetch land. When, like, I, I offer coaching, uh, that is a service I provide. And when we're going over video, like, I, I never like to play live with my coaching clients because we miss too much. And it takes too long to talk through everything because I'm about to talk about how I talk through everything where my my client will start running their video and they're like talking about what they're thinking about like their hand or whatever. And I'm like, wait, you're on the jaw. What do you think of that land drop? And usually in the first or session or two, they're like, oh, um, huh? And then like by the third one, they're like, yeah, I'm pretty sure this is whatever or this rules out these following things and I want to sequence this way. So I really dial in on that first land drop. Like, what does Scalding Tarn tell you compared to Blue to Delta? What does uh, Fetching Underground Sea tell you compared to Fetching Tundra? What if they fetch Basic Island Ponder on turn one versus uh, Volcanic Island Ponder? All that, you can start narrowing down the wedge of things they might be doing pretty quickly. Yeah, and kind of on that note, the fetch lands often tell you what isn't in the deck. Uh, so, for example, if you see a Verdant Catacombs out of a blue deck, it's going to be pretty unlikely that they're going to have a Basic Plains in their deck, right? Um, right. Or an, an old one prior to Delver playing um, Basic Island regularly was Wooded Foothills was often a sign for a Delver deck because it could fetch, uh, like, your, your Volcanic Island as well as your Tropical Island yep. um, while, like, not being a blue fetch land. Um, th that's less true now because a lot of the Delver decks are are playing a basic island. Right, and there's a whole uh, level system of the information game built into history of the thing you just said, where there was a time where just Wild Nakatl Zoo was a viable legacy deck that you would run into with some regularity, and that was a Wooded Foothills deck. And then Rug Delver at the time, I don't even know if they had Delver yet, Rug Canadian Threshold at the time was a Stifle deck that all of their lands could be fetched by wooded foothills you could get the green off the trop or the red off the bulk and it was like a big like oh my god i got stifled on turn one by a wooded foothills that was like a thing and then zoo fell off as a playable deck and then it became wooded foothills is obviously a stifle it, it, it's my opponent played wooded foothills there on rug delver became just a like high confidence determination and at that point it became smarter to lead on flooded strand over Wooded Foothills in your Rug Delver deck, because Flooded Strand was probably Miracles, not Rug Delver. And you could stifle people off of Flooded Strand, which was even weirder than stifling them off of a Wooded Foothills. And these are all just like tiny little games being played with metaphors among like high level players. 
So another thing about this information is like whatever information you have is hyper situational to the metagame that currently exists. So if we were having this conversation seven years ago, Underground C would have indicated Reanimator. Reanimator would have been number one, Ant would have been number two. That has changed today. Uh, if we do this with a different land, if someone went Savannah Go a few years ago, like, that was Maverick. And now when I see Savannah, I am absolutely thinking about green-white depths instead. So while some information about land drops holds true over time, um, just like we saw with the shifting of the control decks from a conversation just a little while ago, like, these lands and what they mean shifts over time. The more dialed in you are to current deck lists, the better chance you have at being able to correctly and quickly identify things just based on lands. Yeah, and there's levels uh, to that. I'm going to say that a lot in this cast. I'm sorry. I'm leading every thought with there's levels to that because there are. Uh, just looking at the front page of Goldfish before you show up to your Saturday local 2K or whatever is going to benefit you a lot. Just scan the top 15 decks, get a feel for what what's out there. I have a friend who uh, I team with once in a while, and he's great because he's an encyclopedia. He'll like lean over in a team tournament and be like, uh, be careful here. There was a Japanese list that ran one post-mortem lunch. And I'm just like, okay, man, uh, good to know. Uh, and you don't need to be that guy, but you do need to be aware of like, um, we've talked about Underground Sea exclusively as like Doomsday, Ad Nauseam, whatever. But we also, in the last section, talked about how Grixis control is back. I've been got on camera a number of times where my opponents like Underground Sea Ponder and then uh, Brainstorm, Fetch for Volcanic Island, cast another Ponder. And I'm like, okay, this is uh, this is Ad Nauseam. They're sculpting. It might be the Epic Storm. The Volcanic Island rolls out most Doomsday lists, but sometimes Doomsday is Grixis, but it's more likely Storm. And then they're just like Narset. I'm like, shit. Keep an eye out for, I guess, like body language would help there or... I'm trying to figure out like tangible things I could tell our audio media listeners here that could help sniff out Storm versus Grixis control of the first two land drops and first two cantrips. As the Grixis player, you should be thinking about what you're projecting as well. Like uh, maybe don't fetch the basic island that gives away that you're a deck that's playing a little longer. Maybe fetch into Wasteland with the Volcanic Island and like expose yourself give up something to sell a, a line like the those are, there's there's layers to that as well and sometimes you're just wrong but you can at least get into the correct wedge of what they're trying to sculpt and try to figure it out from there here i can give you a tangible one so i had an opponent recently go fetch volcanic island ponder turn one on the play and my mind went okay we're probably playing against delver yet again and then turn two they went Ancient Tomb Show and Tell. And I was like, oh, I was not expecting that after seeing Volcanic Island. Like, in their position, I absolutely would have just fetched a basic island, and they, they got me. Giving up something really helps sell a misdirection. Um, there was, like, one of the famous examples was in a, a Pro Tour Top 8, um, Brad Nelson was playing a control deck against somebody with an aggro deck. And Brad had the, whatever the Wrath of God variant, Day of Judgment, Supreme Verdict, whatever standard form that was. And it was going to bury the aggro player. But Brad spent a turn casting Wall of Omens. It must have been Day of Judgment if Wall of Omens was in the format. But Brad cast a Wall of Omens, drew a card, and passed, indicating to the aggro player, 
I don't have it. I'm digging for it. And I just committed a creature to the board, which is going to get swept up if I did have the wrath. So he put real material onto the board, indicating that he didn't have something that he actually did have. So fetching that volcanic island in that spot where it's like, if I get wastelanded, I lose my turn to show and tell. Like that's, that's a big cost. But if they're Delver, you don't really want to wasteland them because screwing Delver with a wasteland isn't really a thing that happens anymore. They have so many cantrip selection. They play more lands than they used to. It Wasting a Delver is usually not your path to victory. You're going to need that wasteland to tap for colorless later. That's that's a really strong sell. Whether they thought about all that or if they were just like, herp derp, I'm going to get the better land. Who knows? But it's something that projected misinformation and Phil went for it. I got to witness a pretty uh, interesting... I'll say that uh, sequence that I'd like to describe to the two of you that I saw on a Discord call over the weekend. So the opponent just goes Pluto Delta go, you know, it could be a lot of things, right? And the on the end step, they go fetch her underground sea cast brainstorm. So to me, my immediate thought is like, oh, that's definitely like an ant play. They're going to untap and try to kill you. Yeah, I'm reading combo on that every time. Yeah. So they untap, play Savannah. Yikes. So my immediate thought is, oh, well, there was that four-color cephalid breakfast list that plays Living Wish. I've seen that in a couple leagues. Like, they're probably on that. They play Cabal Therapy, and I'm like, god damn, Bryant, you are so smart. You read that cephalid breakfast so clearly. They played, I don't remember what they named, but they missed. So I'm like, all right. So we're facing cephalid breakfast, not a good matchup. Veteran Explorer is coming, right? Is that so where that, this is going? That, that's <laughs> a reasonable assumption. So I think that's, like, something that they could be. But they untap and play Leovold. Oh, no. So I'm like, are they like a mid-range control Green deck? Green Sun mid-range? Right? That's what I was thinking at this point. You have to deal with the Leovold. We end up playing like a Burning Wish or something in passing. They then play Recruiter of the Guard. I'm like, oh, that ah. was obvious. But yep. like, it didn't ha- like I didn't know what they were playing until turn four. I'm like, they just hid that they were alluring so well for four turns. Like that one like really got me. I I actually played against that deck and had a similar experience where it wasn't until turn three or four that I was like, oh, wait, because I was 100 percent going in like the Nick fit green sun mid range direction. Yeah. And and we saw that unfold in real time. Like Bryant was giving us little tidbits, the same tidbits that he got. And then you saw me like, oh, it's it's Veteran Explorer. It's like, oh, no, I thought that too. And then like Phil had an idea. And when you said they underground sea untap Savannah, I thought maybe they were going to like Witherbloom command your uh, your Wishclaw Talisman and pick up the fetch land. Like that's something that flashed through my mind as well. And or mill away the two brainstorm cards with uh, with the Witherbloom command and pick up a land. Uh, those were all things that went through my head. But yeah, what, what Bryant just described is the Brewer's Advantage. Like I told you to study the front page of Goldfish. If your deck is the 20th and most people are looking at the top 10 or 15 decks, you're going to get those gotcha moments. But that also means you're playing a deck that is the 18th best deck in Legacy or at least 18th best represented, which, you know, pros and cons to that. But uh, Brewer's Advantage is definitely a thing. As someone who frequently plays the uh, 50th most uh, popular oh, deck tell in me Legacy, <laughs> um, the Brewer's Advantage only goes so far. Phil, you don't have to play Pox in your free time. You can play other decks. Free time? What's that? <laughs> All right. Um, staying on topic, um, something that we kind of just worked through in real time was figuring out what generic archetype or even what generic category of deck your opponent is playing. So when your opponent starts playing cards, figure out what is it likely they are doing. You might go, 
this is a blue deck into this is a blue control deck into this is a bug deck into oh this is like bug leovold with a green sun package uh it finishes with field of the dead like as time goes on you can kind of narrow more and more and more until you like tune into exactly what your opponent is playing sometimes even down to the exact 75 if someone is copying something from a recent challenge or other legacy event yeah a lot is said about magic twitter and i'm not going to say it's a good place but it's certainly a place where you can get information if someone five o's with like four color yoria and cephalid breakfast you're going to see that list retweeted and it's not going to catch you off guard when you're out there in the world uh so there like the more information you allow yourself to consume even passively just like doom scrolling it's like oh i saw that when i was doom scrolling i'm aware of it now is going to help you in some some regard as you start actually playing magic also content creators influencing leagues is a very real thing if <laughs> someone like one of us posts a 50 video that pops off and gets 30,000 views you're going to run into that shit in leagues how many times have you all played against Yokel Hop's prison? Zero. Yeah, it's it's uh what? it's not it's non-zero for me, but yeah, I get messages all the time. Just yesterday, uh I released Is It Prison, which is everything you love about Moonstompy, but also Hallbreacher Days Undoing and Dak Faden. So it's like uh is it Thieves and then also is it Undoing and then also a Trinosphere deck. Uh Bryant's over there vomiting into his shoe. <laughs> but uh yeah, uh I played that, and I, I get messages when I release decks like that. People are like, you know how many decks I've played against today, you asshole? I'm like, ah, what are you going to do? Uh, but, but is yeah, it that, prison? You know what? That is the joke that I made. Uh, I believe the title of that video was, you are not playing this game. Get it? You are for blue and red. That, that's, in rough. The magic that, that's rough. Oh, oh, count it. Scoreboard. I was really proud of that. Uh, I also made the is it prison joke multiple times, but... My cleverness aside on that, uh, yeah, uh, you're going to see some like random bullshit. And we do talk about a lot that the online metagame being different than the paper metagame is less true than people would have you believe. But I think in paper, or at least I, I think the stakes of the event are, cause more variation than necessarily the the metagame at large. Like your, your three round FNM, like unlimited proxy tournament for $20 store credit, you might run into is it prison because Bosch and Roll dropped it this week. Or but like a six or seven round winner gets a volcanic island event. I think people are going to take a little more seriously if they have access to what they want to play. And also, is someone going to put together is it prison who has the cards for that just laying around uh, ready to go for their major event this weekend? Like you can like in leagues, I assume nothing. Uh, I played against Arkin yesterday and I was like, uh, all right, we're paired against Arkin. He's been farming the, the mox series with reanimator, but he's also a streamer. So I'm going to put him on just any kind of random bullshit. And he was in and fact on any kind of bullshit. Ledger shredder, ledger shredder, stone blade. Uh, I don't think it was that. No. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. He plays as many decks as we do, but I get that too. Like people in the chat, I had Tony Scaponi just go for a turn one echo with no protection against me recently. And I just forced him. I just happened to be playing a real deck that day. And he was like, yeah, I just put you on some bullshit. <laughs> and they just conceded and went to the next game. Like it, knowing players, um, Reaple Cheap got me recently. Uh, I was like, oh, we're paired into Reaple Cheap. I kept a hand with Force of Will. I like counter whatever his Dark Ritual payoff was. And he was on Black White Humans and just tore me apart with Cavern of Souls and Thalia and 
freebooter and stuff. And having a reputation, knowing the people is good, but that may also be misdirection. Like Bryant, uh, that time that like back to back weeks, you won a challenge with like Delver and then four color Snowco <laughs> or like a top eight and a win or whatever you did. Uh, like that, that sort of thing. Information can deceive you, but if I sit down against Bryant, I'm going to put him on Storm until he shows me uh, Swords to Plowshares, basically. Just kind of on this note, if you are playing online, MTG Goldfish is a thing that exists. You can look up a user's name specifically and see what they have finishes with. Now, like, you know, buyer beware on that, because, like, people can switch decks. Uh, loan accounts, like, through places like Card Hoarder exist and, like, give people access to, you know, everything in the whole multiverse. But, you know, when you sit down and someone has 50 finishes with High Tide, you know, Marcus. there's a good chance <laughs> that player is still going to be casting High Tide or at least a blue combo deck of some nature. I'd like to share yeah. uh, two quick things here. So there's a new newish member of our Storm Discord, and they've had a couple of decent finishes and challenges. That I, they actually have a couple good finishes with both Ant and TES. They're just, you know, someone that can play both. And in one of their more recent challenges, they went, wow, I just felt like all of my opponents knew what I was doing from the get-go. And the Discord explained to them, yeah, at least when you're playing online, I'd say, and I'm sure you two might tell me if this number's high, but 75% of your opponents are probably looking up what you're playing before the match even begins. Um, maybe that's a little high. I think it's actually pretty reasonable, at least if you're playing competitively. I, I think in the challenge, yeah. Yeah, in a challenge, in Eternal Weekend, in a mock showcase, I would say 75% is a conservative estimate of how many people are Googling you in a league. Depends. Uh, how many trophies does your opponent have? Like, uh, if your opponent's one of the top 10 people on the trophy board and you see their name when you join your league, they're probably Googling you because they're clearly taking this seriously. And you could probably Google them because they're winning a lot. They're probably not switching decks. Like, it goes both ways. For what it's worth, this is not just a Magic Online thing, too. Uh, if I'm at a Grand Prix, when I get the pairing, it's like Greg Smith. I'll Google Greg Smith Magic the Gathering or Greg Smith Tournament Finishes. And Sometimes it comes up blank, or sometimes they're just like a random SCG IQ one and a half weeks ago where they were on, is it Delver? Good to know. There's a lot of data out there on human beings, and a lot of places just rake any data. If your local store posts FNM lists, you're probably out there somewhere where I can Google your, what you played last week at FNM. And your mileage may vary. I know some people get pretty bent out of shape about the idea of like scouting or Googling or whatever, but... It, it's an advantage. And uh, going back to last week's judge conversation where not sporting conduct versus unsporting conduct, if it's within the rules and you choose not to use it, but it is available to you, you can't be mad when someone else does use it. And, agree 100 uh, percent yep. anytime i play in a local level event by the end of round two i know what every person in the room is playing and i will know that red shirt guy is on dredge and blue hat guy is on miracles like, I yeah. will go around the room, I will scout that out, I will put in the work so that when I am playing for top eight, I know what my opponent is playing in that game. Yeah, I make notes in my phone notepad. Uh, you can't take your phone out and make notes during your match. That's against the rules. But if you finish first or before you sit down, just do a quick scan or write it down on your life pad to convert to a notepad later. But yeah, and it I've shared these with my Discord before where uh, like after round two of an event, it'll be like, Pineapple shirt guy, death and taxes, Timothy Oliphant's brother, Storm. I, I try to make them as like funny and memorable to myself as possible. 
rather, like if I know your name, I'll, I'll give you credit. But uh, I'm going to remember Timothy Oliphant's brother in my head more memorably than like guy in blue shirt with tight haircut or whatever. I like to pretend that Timothy Elephant Storm guy is wearing a blazer and like a cowboy hat. Uh, it was not the full railing Givens, but uh, just like a uh, square jawed person with a tight haircut and well groomed. This is like, yeah, kind of looks like Timothy Elephant. Sometimes if my friends, like close friends, teammates are in the tournament, I'll text them my scouting report. And I sent that particular one to Alex Bastecki, who was also in the tournament. And he doesn't watch TV or movies, so he had no idea who T- Timothy Oliphant was. And he just like was looking on the pairings board to see if he was paired against Timothy Oliphant every round, uh, which <laughs> was funny to me later. Love it. Yeah, maybe watch some TV, Alex. I don't know who this person is either. Maybe watch some TV, Phil. All right, does anime count? Is anime TV? Did you watch San Clarita Diet? Nope. Wow. There's no saving you, I'm sorry. Okay, that that that's fine. Uh, did you watch The Mandalorian? Season one. Uh, he is the uh, the town mayor in like the sort of cowboy town. Who, oh, like, okay, pr- sure. Yeah, he, he pretends to be uh, Boba Fett. He's wearing Boba Fett's armor. In that, yes, like, I, know, I now know who this is. Yep, that's him. My wife finds it very amusing that I have like a man crush on both him and John Hamm. They're both very attractive men. Nothing wrong with that. It's true. Uh, we're starting to drift into Patreon-only content here on the free side. Do we want to wrap this thing up before we give away any other freebies? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll say a couple more things. In a slightly different direction, pay attention to what lands your opponent is playing. So, for example, if your opponent is playing a blue deck that is playing a basic island, not a snow-covered island... You have just gotten the information that they are not playing Ice Fang Coatl. And in previous metagames, like, you know, snow-covered lands would be an indication of something like Arkham's Astrolabe, and by extension, usually Oko as well. Or if you're playing a deck against a deck that has a split of snow-covered lands and regular lands, either they have a ton of that basic and they're looking to split them for Predict, or maybe they're intentionally splitting them for something like Field of the Dead. There are, like, tiny bits of information that you can gleam from just even like what basic land your opponent is choosing to play i played against uh rodney bedell in uh scg philly uh we were it was a win and in for top 16 i think we were both dead for top eight but he was on green white depths and his fourth or fifth land drop was temple garden and i was like that is not stock why would you have that card you're a card vendor i know you have savannas you have field of the dead in your deck somewhere and we were able to like sniff that out just from something suspicious like Temple Garden appearing at the midpoint in a game after Savannah was already in play. Like that is there if you choose to to sniff it out. Yeah, that that's actually the note that I wanted to end this episode on. When you see something strange in Legacy, ask why would my opponent have that card or why would my opponent do that thing, right? And this goes back to like Bryant's example of playing against that Aluren deck, right? Like, when he saw that Savannah, after Underground Sea, like, alarm bells went off in his head. Like, something is wrong here. Why is my opponent doing that? And if you take it past, like, huh, that's weird, into thinking about, like, why and what options that represents, you are going to get much better at this subgame of reading your opponents, figuring out their decisions, figuring out what cards they have in hand. Yeah, uh, I belt this into my listeners and my coaching clients and anyone who listens to me talk about how to play magic assume your opponent has the ability to like read and think like it's easy to be like oh that dummy i'm playing so much better than them i know that they have this two drop in their hand and they didn't even cast it lol and then you get blown out by counterspell or dovin's veto or whatever 
because they left up that two mana for a reason. If you give your opponents credit that they are thinking breathing autonomous organisms over there and not just like uh, robots whipping cards around without reading, you're going to do a lot better, uh, whether it's weird or whether it's obvious. Like sometimes it's like uh, my opponent has my Delver opponent has not done anything for three turns and they have three volcanic islands and mystic sanctuary in play. And then suddenly they decide to play a, a fetch land. And I'm like, okay, they just drew force of will. Like they, the incentive to sandbag this land for brainstorm just switched to the incentive to hardcast force of will. And they've been holding this land for several turns and that just telegraphed what they drew. And like that sort of thing uh, you really want to be, dialed in on uh why would you play your fifth land in your brainstorm deck oh you have a five drop that you want to cast Batter's it's call. there if you look for it yeah batter's call got me good all right uh why don't we go ahead and end it here for today folks i hope that was helpful to you all and for those of you who are supporting us via patreon uh be sure to check back uh, next week or so and maybe you can submit the patreon suggested question next time around 